When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. What does it take to call yourself a changemaker? Is it a little pretentious, given most social change needs a collective of people exerting pressure? What part do individuals play in shaking up the status quo and ultimately replacing it? Our guest today is a political commentator, a writer, and a regular guest and voice on UK television. He is controversial to some, loved by others. A big figure in the UK political scene, all the more remarkable given he is young in years. Today's Changemaker Chat is with Owen Jones. Well, true confessions, it's not really today's chat. We recorded this interview in June 2019, and even though it feels like it's not that long ago, a lot has happened since then. But luckily our conversation wasn't about the daily news, but instead about Owen's history and political views. There may have been a few elections and a pandemic between the interview and now, but there's plenty of clear insight. We talk about class, socialism, and Owen's thoughts about the British Labour Party over the past two decades. We look at the importance of an extra-parliamentary theory of change, the idea that you don't just get change through pulling the levers in Parliament. There's lots in this. So, let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemaker Chats, conversations with people changing the world. We are supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. And you can sign up to our email list at changemakerspodcast.org. So can I, can I just get you to say your, your name also, just to make sure I've got it right? I'm Owen Jones, and I'm a writer, author, and activist. Excellent. In that order? Hmm. Oh, in order. Very interesting question. Well, I always say I write as a means partly to an end, which is to give a platform to issues, causes, people who are airbrushed out of existence, demonised, attacked, marginalised... Yeah, so I, I, yeah, I, I, I definitely, as a writer, link my what I do to a broader political project in the sense, as a, as a socialist, I believe that's a collective endeavour, and the contribution of any individual is, is always very limited as a consequence. But I definitely see myself as part of a of movements and, and an activist. Yeah, yeah, cool. Which sort of, I mean, it really does relate to to the first thing I want to talk to you about, which is, I guess, what kind of change maker are you? How would you describe the kind of practice that you that you exercise? Well, I'd never call myself a change maker. Um, How come? Tell us why. Um, I don't think, I think you're kind of appointing yourself something 
Um, I think I, it's quite arrogant, probably. Uh, Thanks, that, Owen. You know, we no, really no. appreciate hearing that in the changemaker chat. <laughs> no, I think it's because I'm English, okay, and we do probably you over don't the like top. yourselves very much. No, we don't. We, we <laughs> overdo self-deprecation. I, I think back home, if I call myself a changemaker, it's like calling yourself an intellectual. I don't know. Would you? It just it can sound a bit pretentious. No, I mean, I, I think it's fine to call other people changemakers, um, but it's just if people appoint themselves. I think I'm somebody who, uh, you know, first and foremost, is I'm, I'm a socialist. Uh, I believe in using the collective power of people to uh, exert pressure and to achieve far-reaching social change. That's my theory of social change, that we don't win change through the goodwill and generosity of the powerful. You know, the powerful didn't wake up one day and think, oh, I'm feeling generous today. I'm going to give women the vote for a laugh. People have to organise at great cost and great sacrifice. And, you know, I understand that change isn't linear. Um, there was the Whiggish view of history, which is that history is just a constant move shift towards ever greater liberty and equality and enlightenment and that should have died a death um, on the Somme or at least in Auschwitz-Birkenau. So I believe that you can have catastrophic setbacks, you know, change is often a, it's often a story of setback, defeat, setback, defeat and then victory mm. and often at the time, uh, you know, those who struggle are ignored, they're demonised, they're persecuted and if we look at the history of, of Australia or Britain or, or any other country, that's how change happens. But I don't think it's, you know, it's always, it's, I don't believe that in, individuals are themselves the, the engine of change. It was Karl Marx who said, uh, men make their own history, but not in circumstances of their own choosing. So, uh, and obviously it should be humans, but it was the 19th century. Um, so Rosa Park, I suppose, is a classic example, because often I think, uh, look, Rosa Parks was an incredible woman, but, you know, it was often given as an example of, of individual change. But Rosa Parks was a member of the NAACP, the civil rights organisation, uh, and was a trade unionist. And there'd been other African-American women before her who'd refused to go to the right, the so-called right side of the bus um, in, 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 under segregation. But she was part of a collective struggle, and that was a, an intervention which was part of that organised struggle. So I always see it that way. Change is something which is a collective struggle. It's constantly full of setbacks and defeats. Um, and it's often very difficult and hard, but I believe is is vindicated by history, even though the gains, the, the rights and freedoms our ancestors fought for are constantly menaced and under threat, as, as we see across the world today. And so you embrace this language of socialism, which is both, some would say, antiquated, and others would say really super cool at the moment, given what's going on in... Um, in places like the UK and the US. Tell me, tell me why you think that language is important to framing the kind of social change you're seeking. Well, the way I see it is that, you know, an economic system that prioritises profit ahead of the needs uh, and aspirations of the majority, that puts places profit ahead, not just of the needs of humanity, but also the planet, which faces an existential threat because of climate change, of climate crisis, sorry, climate emergency. My own newspaper's abandoned climate change in its style guide. It's now either climate crisis or climate emergency, which is absolutely correct. Yeah, you better get it right. Uh, We're going to re report into them after the interview. Exactly, email them. Um, yeah, and I, I, I uh, you know, I, the way I look at socialism is the democratisation of every part of life. So it's not just about voting every few years. It's about democratising the economy. It's about democratising the workplace. It's about an irreversible shift of wealth and power away from those at the top to mm. to working people to the to the majority and i think 
you know, I think it's fascinating, the United States in particular, where the very word socialism was, you know, kind of banished from political discourse. Uh, People you know, went to jail. The Red Scares of, you know, after the, uh, the Russian Revolution and then obviously after World War II, uh, McCarthyism, of course, people's lives were destroyed. And, it, you know, obviously the constant association with the Stalinist totalitarianism um, of the East. But now you see this huge resurgence. Socialism has more uh, cachet and, and, and kind of purchase in America now than probably any time in the history of the American Republic, including when Eugene Debs stood as a socialist presidential candidate a uh, hundred years ago. So, and, and I think that's because the promise of what that catchy word everyone uses down the pub, neoliberalism, but what, what it said in the seventies onwards, when you got the rise of this idea of uh, market fundamentalism was in its populist form was we will set the individual free. They will be freed from the state and from collectivism and they will be able to achieve anything they can that's within their own ability and what the state won't punish them for their for their success and in the end that was used to rationalize inequality those at the top deserve to be there because they're the best the brainiest the hardest workers if you're there at the bottom well that sucks but it's your own fault you're stupid you're just not good enough and the other thing was what was actually promised as freedom uh, as personal freedom actually became lived as in insecurity and insecurity is not freedom at all if you're lying awake at night staring at the ceiling because you you're scared about opening the gas bill lying on your on your kitchen table is that freedom if you're constantly scared of being kicked out of your privately rented home where 70 percent of your pay, wa wages are going to a your, your private landlord is that freedom if you're uh, you know you're, you're doing a zero hour contract and you don't know how many hours you're going to work that day let alone next week uh, or how are you going to pay for, for your family is that freedom you know that's not freedom and i for me socialism is the expansion of of, of freedom of autonomy very interesting the, the the kind of shortening the working week uh, agenda because i think we spend too much of our life surrendering our freedom to uh you know what is basically an authoritarian kind of construct of of having to work for an employer and having to be at the whims and you know of authority so i i, I see socialism as a very liberating democratizing force i don't see it obviously as the kind of bureaucratic nightmare of, of stalinism yeah so I am interested in understanding why and the journey, I guess, you've taken to be able to come to that place because, you know, it's one thing to be able to pronounce a, a belief system, but actually for us to really understand uh, that belief system, I, 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 and I feel like you've been great in articulating it, but I'd love to know why that came to be important to you. So if you were to tell us the Owen Jones origin story, <laughs> you know, and I, and I know you're, you're not into this individualistic idea but like to tell us why you came to be um interested in these values like where did it come from where did it start for you uh, well it's definitely a family tradition uh my my great granddad took part in the last general strike uh britain in british history which is 1926 he went on uh strike in solidarity with the miners he was a railway man uh, he had his wages docked uh causing a huge division within his own family at the time my granddad's uh, began as a apprentice dock worker in Portsmouth, which is a port on the south coast of England. And after the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union, he joined the Communist Party, which was relatively popular amongst kind of anti-fascist types at the time, but then was involved in the Labour Party. My grandma was a uh, a Labour councillor, and you know she one of her proudest moments was stopping a, a family being evicted from their homes at Christmas. My 
my great uncle was a Methodist lay preacher and a socialist. Um, and often those things sometimes went together. He was, he was Welsh, uh, and was, and was involved in, in, in both, you know, he, he sort he linked his faith to, to, to his mm -hmm. politics. And my, pa my parents met through the Labour Party, the socialist, the youth wing at the time. They met canvassing for the Labour Party in 1968. Uh, romantic. It's so uh, romantic. <laughs> uh, but they, they gave up because there was a snowstorm, so they ended up in the pub. And they were both involved in something called the Militant Tendency, which is a Trotskyist organisation. Mm. Uh, and my dad was the full-time organiser. But I was born in 1984. I've got two elder brothers and a twin sister. And it was in the midst of the minor strike, which was a, a huge tumultuous period of British history and a bit of a, a turning point, I suppose, because the miners were always seen as the vanguard of the labour movement. They were the most, they, they, they toppled the conservative government in the 40s. They went on strike against the conservative government of Ted Heath. Uh, he famously called an election because of the strike and under the slogan, who governs Britain? And the answer from the electorate was not you, mate. And, and, and therefore the miners, there was a sense of the miners have to be taken down, not least because they, the Conservatives saw them as such a menace. Mm, especially under the emerging neoliberalism, right? Exactly. So, you know, and that was the idea of just, you unleash market forces mm. regardless of the consequences. Now the miners were, were defeated and it was a humiliating defeat for the labour movement and a turning point which Thatcherism after that was completely hegemonic. After that it was just defeat defeat, defeat, defeat for the labour movement. And my, my parents after that, I mean, partly, you know, the revolution does not pay the bills. So uh, my, my dad had to, had to get, a, you know, a job for the council. And they both kind of actually, kind of, they, they drifted out of, the, out of politics because, it, you know, there was like an ideological civil war in, in the 80s and, and their side lost in a humiliating mm. fashion. They were smashed by the, the rise of the new right, which was just on the ascendancy at the time. And, uh, and, you know, they had kids and, you know, they were tired, basically. And they still, you know, I remember being taken on a protest when I was five uh, against the poll tax, which was a very regressive tax imposed by Thatcher in the late 80s, where everybody for the local authority had to pay the same level of tax, however rich or poor they were. And I remember taking part in a protest in Glasgow and uh, I, I, I started a chant, uh, which was my proudest political moment. Uh, it's downhill all the, all the way since. So I was still always, you know, there was still that kind of political setting because sometimes people, they think I was, you know, I must have been brainwashed. I'm not a Trotskyist actually, so, but, <laughs> but uh, they think I must have been bread, brainwashed. And in America, people like myself are called red diaper babies. But actually, they, they felt crushed and... I kind of rebelled against that sense of hopelessness. I couldn't mm. accept. I grew up in an age of, which was, I think, best summed up by Francis Fukuyama, um, a Japanese-American political theorist, the end of history. You know, that mm. was it. Time's up. It's not just, you know, and there's this quote, uh, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. And I'd actually substitute that in the 90s for free market capitalism. That was it. It seemed like that was the only game in town in the era the 90s and, mm. and, and most of the noughties, and for all of the noughties. And, and I, I, that kind of suffocating triumphalism was something that I you know, couldn't accept and, and, and rebelled against. And it's, it's only in the last few years that sense of triumphalism has, has really started to be unpicked. So how did you begin your rebellion? Um, how did I begin my rebellion? I was involved in, I mean, I joined various political kind of campaigns when I was a teenager. I mean, a big formative experience for me and for many politicised younger people, in, including those who, unlike myself, came to politics, not through their, their family. Uh, you know, I have I almost a lot more respect for that in a sense. 
but was the Iraq War in two thousand and three, uh, and you know I was I, I protested against that. I have no idea how many times. I remember the big protest where two million people took to the streets on the fifteenth of February, two thousand and three, and it was a freezing cold day, and it was more of a shuffle than a march because there were so many of us. Um, and then after that, after I left university when I was twenty one. I started working for a then obscure left-wing Labour MP called John McDonnell, who's now the shadow chancellor and the right-hand man of Jamie Corbyn, the, the leader of the oh, Labour wow. Party. So I was, I was involved for, for a few years in the Labour left, um, which was then completely marginalised. It was on its last legs. If you were young and left-wing, as a general rule, you wouldn't join the Labour Party. People looked and they thought, why would you... Yeah, I'm wondering, like, why you thought that that was a useful space? I think because of my family tradition, because mm. so many other young people at the time looked at me with bafflement. And I, I have to say, at the time, when I saw a, a young person in the Labour Party, I would look at them with huge suspicion. Uh, you know, <laughs> you didn't trust anyone else either. Well, you just presume, you know, I don't, I don't want to, you know, be too brutal about this. That, that was a careerist who was yeah. with right-wing politics because, you know, they trebled student tuition. Sorry, no, they didn't. They introduced student tuition fees. I do apologise. They, they were trebled late, just after they fell. You know, there was the Iraq war. I know. It was just horrified. I mean, it was a visceral horror. And, uh, you know, the Labour Party membership collapsed. It went from half a million to about 180,000. So I was involved, I think, because of my family tradition and because I started working for this kind of caucus of, of, of the Labour left. And I helped to run the leadership campaign, which was not a success, of, of John McDonnell at the time, who stood when Tony Blair uh, stood down, but he didn't get the requisite nominations. In Britain, unlike Australia, the membership get a say on, on who becomes the leader of the Labour Party, but the MPs are the gatekeepers. It happens here too. Oh, but I didn't think the Labour... I thought just Labour MPs decided... No, no, no. They're, if there's a ballot, there's a ballot that goes to the membership. It's just most of the time there's a fix and it doesn't Oh, I see. Going. Right, OK. You have to have a contest, right? Yeah, I see. OK, because <laughs> it's all decided generally. I get you. So one time there was a ballot. In, tw- oh, in 2016, see. I think it was, there was, a, there was a ballot for the membership. And there's been a ballot in some of the states. Ah, OK. Because normally in Britain there's always a contest, with exceptions. And it was an exception in 2007 because Gordon Brown where it was, it was a coronation, uh, which was a very rare event in, mm. in Labour Party history in Britain. And uh, so, jo- so that, that was a terrible failure. And what I did then, having spent so much time in Parliament working for trade unions, trying to, you know, get... Uh, we, tried, we helped to organise backbench rebellions on civil liberties, workers' rights, privatisation, try and put issues on the agendas like pay and pensions. But I felt like I was banging my head against a brick wall. So then I felt that the best way of contributing was, was, or, or an idea, was to write. And uh, so I started working on writing a book. Um, and that, my first book came out in 2011 called Chav's The Demonisation of the Working Class. And that did infinitely better than I expected because people were ready to talk about class mm. in Britain again. Most of the time when I grew up, there was this sense of if you talked about class, you were kind of like a communist dinosaur from the 1970s and you should get back in a time machine. Uh, everyone was now middle class. That was the mantra. But because of the crash, the financial crash, because of the austerity that was then imposed by a government which was drawn from very privileged sections of British society, uh, inflicted on people from far less privileged sections of society, uh, the idea of class came back. So that book became a big bestseller, mm. not... You know, I, I think partly because of the time Speaking in which I Speaking to lived. the times. Exactly. People mm. were ready to have that conversation again. Can, I want to talk a little bit about 
what's in the book. But before that, I actually am interested in talking about the writing process as a, as a space that you chose, right? And I, it rings true to me because I too have chosen to write about, think and write, research politics and organising at certain times in my life. What what was it about that space that you found energising, helpful? What was useful about that time for reflection? Well, it's funny because I don't often enjoy writing that much, though I've spoken to enough writers. But most writers are like that. Exactly. No, it's painful and awful and terrible and torturous. I think you're a sociopath if you enjoy writing. Sorry, I should (laughs) probably just smear people who actually enjoy that process. Yeah, I think finishing it is satisfying. I I just think it can be a very good way of of reaching people and, and encouraging them to... You know, what I wanted to do with my books is to get people, A, to be angry and B, to do something about that anger. Um, you know, I remember people posting pictures on uh, Twitter and Instagram of them taking my book on holiday. And I was like, stop it. Do not take that to a beach. You're not going to enjoy your holiday. Yeah. So, I mean, for me, it was a way of, I think you could reach people and encourage them because I, that's what happened with me. I remember as a teenager, the Canadian author Naomi Klein was yeah. a big impact on me because at the time she was a rare kind of voice extraordinary and she was like a light amongst the no darkness. logo was that the book or yes uh no logo was the yeah the first book and then i remember her collected works she published a book which had a load of articles she'd written and that was during in the late 90s early noughties mm. the anti capitalism anti globalization exactly, exactly or alter globalization yeah, well, or whatever we, you want to we, call we it we exactly. had so much trouble looking at what exactly that one. <laughs> and that was derailed really by 9-11 and, and mm. what happened after that but well it sort of turned into the movement around the war in Iraq. you're absolutely right yeah I, you, you, exactly so it provided that call for the anti-war movement but as the kind of a, that specific yeah, that narrative shifted exactly very much so and but she so i looked at her as someone who really inspired me and had a big impact on me and you know for me i thought well you know i understand the power of writing i can see how that's had an impact mm. um, and i think especially if you can link it to the spirit of of the time in which you lived for me that first book i wrote was about you know i i didn't think you could have a left as i understand it a left movement without an understanding of class politics and i thought class politics had been stripped out of the political mainstream and that was at the root of many of the problems we had because you have to understand uh, if you want to get the sort of change i believe in certainly there isn't just the fact that you have different class interests but they want to on their own collision they're fundamentally their interests are mm. are counterposed you know a, a worker who wants better wages and more rights has to engage in a conflict with an employer who wants to keep their labor mm. costs down um so fundamentally and you know a, whether it be uh, you know someone who wants their properly funded services and a major business who doesn't want to pay their taxes there were always these conflicts in society i felt that the erasure of class the fundamental kind of i mean i need to be careful there because what i wrote about and i've always written about is how class intersects with other things well you know well, they have, of course the intersectionality is now more widely understood than it was when you probably were first writing about it very know? much so so you know and i did write i would write in the book about um you know if we look at the intersection of class and gender so how women are most likely to do the least well-paid and most insecure and often the jobs with the least prestige, uh, where they can be, you know, mistreated in in specific ways. The same, of course, with working class people who are black, who are from in Britain, Pakistani or Bangladeshi origin, more, far more likely to live in poverty. So, I, you know, it, when we talk about class, sometimes the worry for me was there was this kind of slightly patronising 1950s mm. white straight man in their 50s. Well, you've got your own experience with intersectionality, yeah. 
what as you mean as a gay person yes um yeah <laughs> no, no, no i mean as a black man right <laughs> oh i see yeah good point uh yeah i mean so i you know i always i, I suppose as a as, as a as a queer person or, or however best described i obviously always understood the lgbtq rights movement had to you know organize and fight to win many of the rights and freedoms that people like myself had even though there's still so far to go but so yeah it would be completely ridiculous and simplistic and economic determinism to just go it's class and nothing else you have to intersect it with the majority of working class people are not actually white straight men by definition no i mean in fact for a start most are women teachers yeah yeah exactly i mean just there is a majority of women in society anyway uh, so I think it's very important that, you know, that that sense of what class is and, you know, how it's changed as well from being factories and docks and mines to more like to be supermarkets and call centres and offices mm. uh, where often, you know, again, it's women doing the, often the lowest paid and most insecure work with the least rights and security. And I was going to ask, like, you obviously have a very sophisticated understanding about the mechanics of class um, conflict, right? I wonder if as you were building the book and as you were sort of rediscovering this language of your parents as well as as sort of building it for yourself, you reflected on your own personal experiences in your growing up and all the experiences of your family to really, I guess I'm wondering how your story, other people's stories of of what it means to be a class of itself as well as in itself. Yeah, of course. E.P. Thompson and so on, mm. the, the making of the English working class talks about in that organised sense. I mean, my own family, I, w- I mean, my dad was a, was a, a, a local authority worker, uh, but a, wi- a white collar local authority worker. My mum was an IT lecturer at a, a kind of ex-polytechnic university in, in, in Britain. So I grew up in a working class community where people would very much regard myself as middle class. Mm. Um, you know, I was always... You know the people at primary the primary school I went to, which was in the bottom five percent by results, and I was the only boy to go to university, let alone sixth sixth form, which is where you go when you're sixteen. You know, more went to prison, so I always had an understanding actually that I would never portray myself as a working class hero because I'm 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 definitely not. But My, your fr- but your friends were very much so. Yeah, no, I mean the idea of kind of organising and an, uh, an, an organised labour movement was something I very much grew up with. My dad was. Uh, involved himself in a struggle which was defeated and he was as a local authority worker he was the senior shop steward for his trade union and they tried to they they sacked hundreds of workers including himself when I was a teenager and he was one of the leaders of that of that struggle and one of the main negotiators and then he was unemployed for two years so I had that sense of struggle you know but but very much what for me I I saw the contrast between people I grew up with and then I went to Oxford University where for the first time in my life I met people from grammar schools let alone from private schools and the chasm of lived experience between people who I grew up with in poverty often many of the people I knew and uh, people who uh, were drawn from some of the most privileged sections in society and, and this is a critical point, had no understanding, you know, of... Or they they had that sense of people who grew up in circumstances they had never encountered had brought that upon themselves. That is partly the dogma people were fed, but also, and you, I definitely saw this at Oxford University, that sense of people... Everyone wants to feel they've got to where they have in life off their own steam and Mm. because they're the best and talented. And when you start to think to yourself, 
well, actually, I had certain odds stacked in my favour, which I would always be aware of. I, you know, I didn't go to university um, because I was brighter at, you know, back it's at because you were a better person, yeah? No. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? That's how, but that's what Thatcherism tried to teach yeah. people. Uh, but because I had odds stacked in my favour. Now, for many people, that causes a crisis of insecurity. It's kind of, no, 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 no. I got here because I'm the best. Come on. I did this because I'm really talented and these people are just less talented than me. And that's not how it works. So I, I very much saw, you know, having seen the two kind of extremes of, yeah. of British society. Um, but it was that sense as well, which is very clear to me that, you know, what, what had changed, the way working class people were demonised often in the 70s was they were too strong. It was union militants mm. um, and it was their collective power. And from, in the time I grew up, it was very much, they were demonised as pathetic, feckless. It was almost like, here's a shattered rump who didn't make it in the Thatcher period, uh, who live on sink estates and just pick up benefits and watch reality TV all day and that kind of thing. But for me, it was I, what I always understood through my family's history and the history, which I, I mean, I studied history, was it was it, it, the only way you got change was through collective power. And that sense that working class people, yes, had that consciousness that because what E.P. Thompson, you alluded to, uh, talks about with class is class isn't a static concept. It's, it's, it's about uh, its relationship with other, other classes in society. And, you know, that sense of organised working class struggle is how, how the rights that working class people got were achieved. And I saw, you know, the way I saw it in the 80s in particular, you, the boss class fought back. Mm. The, the consensus of that had been established after World War II was when they felt the, the elites very fragile because of the aftermath of World War II and the fear of, as they saw it, of, of Bolshevism and communist revolution. Yeah. They were resigned to accepting, uh, you know, the welfare state, higher taxes on the rich, strong trade unions. But then it, I think there was a sense of actually the economic crisis of the 70s was we can't afford this anymore and it's chipping away our rate of profit and actually we can get away with getting rid of it as well. And the only way of changing that was... To, you know, in that conflict where the boss class took away and fought back and reasserted their power was an organised movement to, to drive them back. Talking about the places where class organises, one of the, the places that class organises is in political parties and you were in the Labour Party before it was cool, which is, you know, interesting. <laughs> Did you stay a member of the Labour Party through the, the 2010s? Like, I'm, I'm going to start talking, um, ask you about the transformation of the Labour Party in the UK. But were you always a member? Yeah, yeah. I, I well, I, I, I stopped being a member for about a year and a half during the Iraq War. And I, so I rejoined, I think, in 2005, which is right. a, a, a very strange time yeah. for a young left-wing person to, to join the Labour Party. And it was before I worked for John McDonnell the, uh -huh. um, and, and, and the Labour left, basically. Uh, but no, no, I stayed again through the 2010s. So what I would do is, um, as an activist, is I would try and support getting left-wing candidates selected as Labour MPs. Mm -hmm. And we managed to get some of them selected and then elected as Labour MPs, and then they went on to nominate Jamie Corbyn. So actually, even in the 2010s, under Ed Miliband, and Ed Miliband was a... Uh, that era was a very strange era because Ed Miliband was somebody who became leader of the Labour Party. He was the son of a Marxist theatrician, and his brother was from the Blairite faction, uh, and they both stood against each other for leader, which is, uh, I, yeah. It's a very public-private fight. <laughs> very odd in lots of ways, but what the hell. They had, and Ed Miliband, but they both came from 
you know, Ed Miliband was torn between himself being a former New Labour advisor and Apparatchik and the son of and the son of his Marxist father. Yeah, Ed Miliband. Is the, what was it? The state and capitalist state. Exactly, yeah. and parliamentary socialism. And he wrote all those books about uh, the, the the limits of. Uh, I mean, there was a joke of Ralph Miliband where uh, he he spent much of his life writing about how Labour. Uh, could never deliver socialism. His 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 sons went into politics to prove it. Uh, but he, but Ed Ed always had, in my opinion, you know, he's he's a guy with the heart, his heart in the right place, and actually did understand that there needed to be a shift away from the political consensus established by Margaret Thatcher, but was torn between. Uh, Firstly, his kind of his background as a New Labour special advisor, the caution that instilled in him, and also the people surrounding him who were who were opposed fundamentally to a, a break, a fundamental break with that consensus, like his shadow chancellor, a guy called Ed Balls. And so what happened is that period was a weird time where he basically triangulated between the left and right, the left as it was, the left, the soft left of the Labour Party, because mm. the left in its traditional form had collapsed in that period, and the right, and with, with whilst never really satisfying anyone. So you had this very false unity, which erupted very dramatically when Labour suffered a unexpected defeat, which is very familiar to you. I was going to say, where else has had an unexpected <laughs> Labour defeat? Hmm, uh, I mean, just think on that, right? It was literally, so in 2015, Labour stood basically lots of good policies uh, in, well, they had some good policies in, in their own right, but with no story to bring them together, and they were defined by their oh opponents. Oh, goodness. Gosh, uh, I'm just <laughs> wanting to place this in my own world. <laughs> um, but after that, so after the 2015 defeat, there was a real sense of despair amongst those of a leftish bent because uh, we, we feared, correctly, that the defeat of Labour would be portrayed as it being too left-wing and that it wasn't anti-immigration enough, that it wasn't calling for enough of a clamp down on social security and the welfare state, uh, that it didn't support enough cuts because that meant economic credibility in, in those terms. And uh, three candidates in, uh, initially, well, there was a few more, but three there were three in the end who were going to run. Um, and the most leftish of those was a guy called Andy Burnham, a, a really lovely guy. Uh, but he'd stood as the Blairite candidate a few years earlier, shifted to uh, kind of be a left kind of, um, you know, he was he was the shadow health secretary that always endears yourself to the grassroots because the NHS is, mm. is, is just, you know, an article of faith amongst the Labour grassroots. But he pivoted to the right as he's at the beginning of the leadership contest. He launched his campaign in Ernst & Young, which is obviously a major accountancy firm up to his neck in industrial scale tax avoidance. Uh, and there was a real sense of we have to get a left candidate not to win, but in order to put ideas and policies on the agenda. And at the time, we were all scrabbling around trying to think of somebody. And the unexpected person who ended up basically shrugging his shoulders in a meeting to say, well, it's my turn now, was a, a, a man with, who most people in Britain had never heard of uh, called Jeremy Corbyn, who was mostly associated or mostly known amongst more activist lefties, particularly in the peace movements and in kind of campaigns for justice in other countries. Lots of people have theories of change about changing the Labour Party. And some of them think you change the Labour Party to change the community. Some of them think there's a dialectic relationship between the two. Some, some ignore and, and spurn things like the Labour Party and say one just must do change in civil society. What's your theory of change around, around the role of the Labour Party in achieving what you describe of as a sort of democratic socialism? So my understanding, the reason above all else that I felt the left 
even before uh, the dramatic shift in its politics, should be involved in the Labour Party was primarily because of its organic link with the trade union movement. Um, and that's what gave its character as a party with which was institutionally linked to the working class in its workplaces and communities. Um, and if that link was ever formally severed, then it would become an outright party of capital like the US Democrats, and that would be a very different conversation indeed. But so long as that link remained, then there was hope, if you like, mm. for its change. Now, for a long time in the noughties, you could see all the foreshadow of this in the sense the trade unions uh, gradually shifted to the left uh, in the noughties. So there was this struggle going on within the labour movement, which ended up being critical. But also, all those movements which you know I'd been part of as an activist, the anti-war movement, the anti-austerity movement, um, the you know things like uh, something called UK and Cut, which uh, did direct action to, to put uh, tax avoidance on the agenda. The, the shift within the Labour Party would never have happened in 2015 without those struggles within the Labour movement and the kind of extra parliamentary struggles uh, over peace, over climate, actually, over tax avoidance, over austerity. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, and I always saw it that way, which was within, you know, I, I don't, you know, as a Labour leftist, I have an extra parliamentary theory of change. And the reason actually that, the two reasons the Labour leadership is so demonised by its opponents is, A, it's... Uh, traditions in i suppose what would broadly be called anti-imperialism that is an understanding of western foreign policy often being driven by profit and by the economic interests of various elite forces rather than benevolence but the second is its extra parliamentary theory of change so actually even when its political content sometimes is just i mean as things stand it's it's social democracy which in the 1970s would not have been regarded as uh, particularly radical but in our times is you know is seen as is very radical uh, but nonetheless it, it, in its political form is not you know overly it's not you know it, talking about increasing taxes to levels which are still below sweden yeah, um, universal health care but, but not massive <laughs> yeah i mean but it's what what scares them is this extra parliamentary theory of change so it has a belief that you don't just get change by pulling levers in parliament but by mobilizing and organizing people in their communities in their workplaces including backing industrial action and civil disobedience as well for that matter so I, you know and that for me is critical you don't the danger there's always the danger that if the left take over the labor party then people go well now we just put all our efforts into just getting candidates elected and so on but actually what is very important and there has been an attempt to do this they've set up a community organizing uh, unit is is actually to not least because of the massive surge in membership, Labour now has one of the biggest mass mem memberships of any political party in the Western world, is to use that not just to you know, take part in internal elections and pay their subs to keep the party financially afloat, but to mobilise them in their communities as well. And there's still a long way to go with that, but that's my understanding. It is important, and I, I take part in Momentum, which I was a founding member of, which is a grassroots organisation which tried to harness the energy of the first Labour leadership campaign. We do these mass uh, days where we uh, target Conservative-held seats and get hundreds of activists to pour out and knock on doors and, 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 and so on. But it is also the community organising bit, which is very, very, very important. And also, for example, when there are strikes, mobilising people to support, getting people on picket lines, uh, building those bonds of solidarity. 
I mean, another movement which was also very important, I, I should, shouldn't forget this, was the student movement of mm. 2010 and 11 in Britain, which I took part in because I was doing a PhD, which I was a dropout of, I'm afraid. And that was critical because in 2010, when the coalition came to power of the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats, uh, and they trebled tuition fees, there were occupations of dozens of universities, thousands of people out on the streets. And what uh, tens of thousands took the biggest student demonstrations since the 60s. And it's fascinating now because many of those activists at the time were, I would say, would call themselves anarchists or autonomists. And now some of them are secretaries of their local Labour parties. You know, they're people who are, who are organising canvassing sessions for the Labour Party. Um, and the danger always was is because it was great. I mean, you, you see this energy of all these young people who back then were like the Labour Party. Are you, you know, kind of sickened, nauseated by the very idea? Of, it's not just, you know, constrained to the UK, might I add. Of course, exactly. <laughs> but now, actually, they are some of the dynamos within. But, the you know, there was always the danger that energy just goes within the Labour Party and everyone yeah. just gives up an well, extra Well, people see them as, as a zero-sum game. Like if you've only got... 10 hours of activism, you're going to either dedicate it to one institution or to social movements rather than being able to, I guess, we need to be able to explore if it's possible for there to be a, a rich dialectic between them. And I what hear you saying there is and there has to be. There is and there has to be, but there has to be worked on more, I think, because I do yeah. think a lot of the energy has just gone into uh, the internal struggle within the Labour Party and, and, for example, electoral politics. That is important. Electoral politics is very important, but it's only, you know, it's One a multi-pronged attack. And, you know, it needs, we need uh, more people to take part in everything from mass protests, uh, which is something I'm very involved in, uh, in peaceful civil disobedience and supporting uh, workers in struggle. Mm, well, especially because the country that has all this activism still voted for Brexit, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, Brexit. Let I think bear in mind that was that was June 2016. You know, there were lots of reasons Brexit happened, and again, it's often there's a simplistic analysis of working class people voted for Leave and middle class people. I didn't say that. No, I know you didn't. <laughs> you definitely didn't. But there is that is definitely by oh, there is a narrative out there. Absolutely, and, and you know, or Northerners, right? Like it's it, we have that too. Like people have identified certain states as being the problem in inverted commas. Exactly, right? and you know, Manchester, the biggest city of the North, voted to remain, and most urban working class communities vote to remain. Most working class people under thirty five voted to remain. BME working class people voted decisively to remain. Uh, the Scottish working class voted. Uh, in hundreds of thousands to remain. And the majority of middle-class people over 65 voted to leave. However, there was definitely a component because 52%, 17.4 million Britons voted to leave the European Union. And, you know, the issue is what brought it over the edge. Mm. Um, and the studies show that austerity played a very, very critical role in why people voted. You know, it was a referendum, which many people saw as, are you happy with the status quo? Are you happy with your life? And many people went, absolutely no. not. Yeah. And Britain, you know, the one statistic you have to understand, above all else, about the political tumult which has taken part, place in Britain over the last three years, four years, is it has suffered the worst squeeze in wages since the Napoleonic War at the beginning of the 19th century. And the worst squeeze in wages, the longest squeeze in wages, of any of the OECD countries, other major industrialised countries other than Greece. Now, that has driven, that has caused a massive sense of disillusionment when you yeah. strip optimism out of people's lives. And one of the key reasons so many people voted to leave the European Union was, you know, their lives had got worse, they were worse off than they were a few years ago. And the problem we had on the left is because the left then had only just taken over the, the Labour Party and, and, you know, it hadn't really 
at that time it was it was you know kind of it was a bit messy it hadn't really got his message across many communities who you know the part of Stockport I'm from voted to leave the European Union these are places where they can't get affordable housing because social housing got sold off and it's not been built it's not been replaced uh, public services under strain because of cuts uh, where decent secure jobs have been stripped out of the economy and where living standards have fallen. Now, the problem is because there wasn't a strong left at the time to go, well, the reason for this happening is the system under which we live and the fact uh, you've been made to pay for a crisis caused by the banks, uh, that society is rigged in favour of the rich, that because the market is put before your needs, uh, the housing you need isn't being built. And immigration filled that vacuum. Now, the part of Stockport I come from, immigration is exceptionally low. And often it was the areas in Britain with the least immigration that voted most decisively to leave, or places where there'd been a recent demographic shift. Uh, not places like London, which have very high levels of immigration. They didn't vote to leave the European Union. Those places, mixed working class communities, often voted very decisively to remain. So, um, but it was because you didn't have that left there with a strong mm. message. We were too late for that, I think. I'd look at that as it was obviously a warning and a foreshadow of other things which you know happened in America, which is when you have massive disillusionment where people don't have a real narrative which mm. explains all the problems which define their lives. And, and that vacuum in much of the Western world has been filled with uh, a discourse based on anti-immigration. Mm. And so do you, I mean, do you have a sense of hope today? I mean, I'm not going to ask you about the crazy mess that is Brexit because it just keeps changing <laughs> and it's sort of, we'll leave that to other commentators. But I, I guess having identified that there's a space for extra parliamentary and parliamentary activism with a rich connection between and then within and across that there's a real importance for for a clear economic narrative that allows people to interpret their lives and I guess organise around them to improve them. Do you have a sense of where that you think that that might emerge? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm hugely optimistic, partly because I think neoliberalism, that system we keep talking about, I think has just run out of road. I think it's run out of ideas. And I think in much of the Western world, it only survives because of a lack of a coherent, inspiring alternative and the fact it's often piggybacking now on ethno-nationalism. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's basically in large part how it's... It, you can see that in Britain and America, that a system which most people, you know, people have increasingly turned away from, Basically, the political forces of neoliberalism often their key message they to attract people whose lives are very difficult is based on ethno-nationalism and uh, you know white nationalism in America, English nationalism and anti-immigration uh, sentiment in Britain. In places like Britain and America, the fact that younger and I mean people you know, kind of in their not just their teens, their twenties, their thirties, and often in their forties as well, because. Clearly, the promise of neoliberalism is, is a joke for many of those people. They can't, you know, go and buy your own home. And how, how amazing is that, they were told, but they can't afford to do that. Uh, there's no council housing, so they're driven in, into an un, a deregulated private rented sector with, with, high, with high rents and a lack of security. Uh, they, they often lack secure jobs. Their wages are stagnating or falling. Their public services are in decay. And they're, they're turning away from that system in, in huge numbers. That's what's powering the rise of the American left. That's what's powered the rise of the left in, in Britain. And I think, you know, I, I, I do think what I grew up with, of that era of the end of history, of there is no alternative, as it was famously uh, portrayed, that idea of what the late a, a guy I, I used to know called Mark Fish, he sadly took his life to 
just over two years ago now, two and a bit years ago, uh, he wrote that, that capitalist realism, and it was that sense of it's easy to imagine the end of the world and the end of capitalism. That has died in places like Britain and America. There is a sense now of the old consensus has, has collapsed and that there was an appetite for something different. Now, I see various struggles taking place, whether it be the cleaners at LSE who are overwhelmingly migrants and uh, from BME backgrounds, often led by women, uh, Jamaican women, and they won. Uh, I see in these striking, you know, whether it be struggling delivery riders and others who are part of this insecure zero hour contract economy who are organizing and fighting for their rights. So I see that, you know, uh, there's strikers at the Weatherspoons chain of pub, which is a huge pub chain in Britain, uh, young workers who are struggling and fighting back. So you can see in, in both the kind of shift in terms of the, the emergence of a left and also in the rise of these different struggles by insecure workers, that, you know, that I think there is something new emerging. The seeds of a new society are there. Oh dear, what just happened? So, at that point, technical gremlins struck my recording with Owen Jones, and it was cut short. Needless to say, despite the abruptness of that ending, I did actually thank Owen for his illuminating changemaker chat. And I hope you enjoyed it too. Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all our episodes. Changemakers is produced by Ben Keating. Our audio producer is Jules Walker. Our series sponsor is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. We are also supported by the Organising Cities Project funded by the Halloran Trust based at the University of Sydney. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all our stories. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.